it was a full-time job to be an alcoholic. I had to, and this is what I relate. And when I tell some of my stories to people that you may not be there yet, but you're going to be the way you're going. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. Five. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133. I need somebody that's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Copy running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. I believe we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. I'm going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squad Room, the podcast that helps you navigate the challenging terrain of our demanding careers. The show is about being one day stronger every day in some way and how we can be better leaders that this world needs us to be. It really is about being the best version of ourselves every day, myself included. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode and every other episode, including show notes and links by going to the squadroom.net. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, any podcast program that you like. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadroom to stay up to date. We have a sponsor I want to thank as well uh, for this episode, Ranger Up Clothing. Many of you know them. Uh, uh, founded by uh, some military veterans who make uh, t-shirts for military, law enforcement, and other first responders, fire uh, make some pretty funny t-shirts, some pretty motivating t-shirts, uh, stuff that, uh, I like and I wear, uh, and they, uh, support the mission of the show. So if you're a Ranger Up fan, you can go to rangerup.com and use the code, the squad room, all one word for 10% off your order. And if you're new, you've never heard of Ranger Up, check them out on YouTube. They got some funny videos, uh, and their website is pretty cool as well. Our guest today is a uh, retired Sergeant Joey Rafferty. Joey um, is an open book, first of all, but Joey has, uh, or had a career that I think mirrors a lot of us and had a downward spiral that he didn't realize was even occurring until he crashed and burned, literally crashed, crashed his patrol car while DUI with his kids in the car. And it, 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 it hurts me almost to even say that out loud and think about what that was like, the the shame, the anger that his family must feel, the anger that he must feel at himself. And Joey realized as a result of that that he had a problem. He was an alcoholic. And I wanted to have Joey on the show because he's one of the few uh, officers I know um, that has gone through a formal rehab program, like a 30-day inpatient, inpatient rehab program, has relapsed, gone back through through rehab, and has come out the other end stronger. And like I just said here in this intro, the whole goal is to be one day stronger. And to me, Joey appears and seems to be stronger maybe than he's ever been. He deals with PTSD most likely from the job, possibly from growing up. He was diagnosed uh, 
uh, after 27 years on the job as being bipolar. And Joey's story can be anybody's story. It really could be. And as he points out, we are recruited from the human race. We have the same failings, the same struggles, the same insecurities and ego as any other profession. And sure, there's check box, check uh, stop gaps in place to prevent some of those things from getting us hired. But we struggle just like anybody else. And to assume that we shouldn't struggle because we are the thin blue line is absurd. So the last thing I want is for someone to be struggling and not get help. And so I think Joey's story today, even if this doesn't relate to you directly, probably relates to a partner of yours. And it gives you a lot of warning signs about what to look for in yourself as you progress through your career, as this job starts to take a toll on you, that you can be aware of to set off the red flag so that you don't end up in the position where Joey was where he spent six days in jail lost his job, and lost the career that meant everything to him. So uh, I want to thank Joey for his time and his honesty and the story. It is a long episode. I don't talk very much because Joey is very good at telling his story, and I I just let him roll with it. Uh, And I try to ask questions that I think are important, but Joey just rolls with it. He was a sergeant for a sheriff's office right outside Philadelphia, between Philadelphia and uh, Trenton, two very busy cities, very dynamic policing environments. He has seen a lot, and uh, I hope that you will listen to Joey's story, reach out to him, and let him know uh, that it meant something to you if it, if it connects with you. And uh, we will post in the show notes for this episode some resources for you uh, or your partners if you feel that you need this kind of help, uh, we want to make sure we can help you help direct you to it. So go to the squadroom.net. You can find this episode and there will be some links to the types of services that Joey talks about in this episode. So without further ado, oh, well, one quick word before we uh, get started. There is some language. I would say some. There is language in this episode. It's an adult conversation. So just a heads up in case you have little ears listening at this point, you probably want to listen to this one by yourself. If you're in charge of maintaining and replacing your agency's firearms or have a hand in that decision-making process, I want you to pay close attention for a minute. This episode is brought to you by ProForce, the largest firearms distributor on the West Coast and the only taser distributor in the West. ProForce is known amongst Southern California and Arizona cops for their great deals on firearms, holsters, and accessories, but what a lot of people don't know is that they also do agency sales and they are responsible for firearms procurement for some of the largest departments in the United States. Their business is helping agencies replace their aging firearms with modern equipment at the best prices available. They've tackled massive replacement programs and also have a buyback program for officers that helps them hold on to a firearm that might mean a lot to them. After 18 years in business, ProForce knows how to help agencies navigate all the challenges that come with transitioning to a new firearm. And believe me, there are plenty. If your agency's firearms are at the point where they need to be replaced and you have a say in the process, you should really check out ProForce. I'm confident you'll get great customer service and a fantastic price on any of the major brands that are out there. They've helped agencies transition to everything from Smith & Wesson, the MMP, to the Sig Sauer P320 or the Glock 17, and every model in between. Also, don't forget about your long guns. They carry Remington Colt 
and many others. Check them out at ProForceOnline.com or call their sales department at 1-800-367-5855. Again, that number 1-800-367-5855 or email them at sales at ProForceOnline.com. They'll hook you up with a free, no pressure, and no obligation quote. Just make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the squad room. Joey Rafferty, welcome to the squad room. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to this conversation, man, because you are uh, you're somebody who I've found who uh, wears it on your sleeve, right? And you got a story that I think so many of us can relate to in some way. And in fact, a lot of us are going to hear your story and think uh, they're going to get uncomfortable hearing this story because it's going to come really close to reality for a lot of people, right? But Oh, absolutely. But the first thing I want to point out is that we have something in common to, just to begin with. We're both, uh, you were a sergeant for a, a sheriff's office. Uh, you're out yeah. in Pennsylvania. People are going to notice your accent's a little different than mine. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you, um, but walk us through your, your career. Like, like, when did you start? What, what year did you go through the academy? <clears throat> I started in, uh, it was 1990. I started in as a dispatcher. I was working nights and going to school during the day. Um, I had a hankering. I wanted to get in the sheriff's office. Um, I know that they usually transfer county employees first before they went outside. That really wasn't the point until they, they had seven they needed to hire. So they threw a bone to me, you know, as a county employee. So I was a trainer in radio. I knew the ins and outs of radio verbiage. Uh, it, it was just a good fit for both. Um, they hired me and almost right away, I already knew what they did as a department. So uh, I, I totally facilitated me looking great by doing everything I already knew how to do as a new employee. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked my ass off and uh, I made a name for myself that I hustled. Um, I didn't come in for eight hours and then just go home, hit a time card. I like to have fun. And the way I used to look at it is you gave me eight hours and I got to fuck with anybody I wanted for eight hours. <laughs> um, so nonetheless, yeah, I, um, I became uh, acting corporal. Uh, in the interim, I was uh, assigned as a team leader for a major incident response team. And that was, I think, 10 years into my career. Um, so I ended my career as a sergeant, but I'll uh, backtrack real quick. So I, I earned those accolades as a deputy. Um, and then we had a new chief come in and he had said to me, how would you feel about being an acting corporal? So, of course, I said, I think I would do an amazing job as a corporal and I would put me in the warrant unit. <laughs> I quickly was told, well, when you're chief, you could do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, the testing came up and I blew past corporal. I was already acting, so I made sergeant. Um, that's when my career really took off right before that. I was a SWAT negotiator. Um, I was assigned to internal affairs. I was the warrant supervisor. Uh, counterterrorism detail out to Philly for big events like the Eagles games or RNC, DNC, the Pope visits. Um, and then I resume my role in my department. So essentially I had like five different functions as a sergeant, um, which is going to probably lead to my story as we uh, progress further. Right. Um, I, I, not to mention this, um, but uh, it kind of parlays into the same um, vernacular is that I have four kids with the stay-at-home ex-wife during this whole process. So just to give your your viewers and your listeners a little of, you know, the 
the background before I go into the story. And where, so you're in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, is where you're employed. What is that? Like, give us a size. The where is that? The size of the department and and that kind of stuff. Because I'm realizing too that there are differences between a sheriff's department in California versus like a sheriff's department in New York. You know, and it seems like one cons- one consistency one consistency is that we all handle uh, courts and, <laughs> courts and jails, right? We all handle except for municipal courts, but we all handle county courts and right. jails. But some uh, sheriff's departments are just courts and jails. Others are like mine are what you would probably describe as like a full service agency where we do patrol, we do investigations, we do those things in addition to controlling the jails and courts. What, what is your County like? Um, our County is, it's actually pretty unique because we do have um, a full service, so to speak. It is mm-hmm. um, officers that are trained uh, background of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is that the police chiefs, there's 54 uh, different municipalities in my County. Wow. Um, Just in your in County. County that's 54 different chiefs that you're going to piss off uh, because you're going into their territory. Mm-hmm. I used to say I have a gold badge because I can go anywhere in the county um, and you can't You have to stay in your township or boroughs. So we were pretty much like a backup role with local police departments. We weren't, we weren't dispatched, but they knew our sector. So they would dispatch us in uh, as a secondary unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not run traffic. Um, and that's because the sheriff probably didn't want that because it would take away uh, potential votes. (laughs) And that's what you, you know, when you have a, it's really a row office, um, essentially. I mean, Mm -hmm. my boss was fantastic. He, uh, he was a Philly captain. He retired there. He went over to another municipality in my County and was a chief there. And then he became the chief of law enforcement authority in, uh, Pennsylvania. So it's, I always say my County is the body. And then you have Trent, New Jersey as the armpit, and then you have Philadelphia as the armpit. So basically, those two pollinate back into Bucks County. <laughs> um, right. You could go from the bottom county, which is, you know, you get your drugs, you get your, you know, high calls. And then you could go all the way to the upper end of the county where they got horses and they talk a lot lash. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's really wherever you want to play, which mm-hmm. was fantastic for me in Warrens, I would go where the fish, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Uh, you know, I'm running from house to house. We're checking out leads. So uh, there's a civil division where all they do is civil process. They're, you know, certain uh, lawsuits, uh, you know, levies, mm-hmm. uh, rules of replevin, um, all those items. They have a warrant division. Um, and they, most of the people that are Act 120, um, are allowed to write tickets, but we're kind of told not to because mm-hmm. I could be in the highest of my county at, or at one day and then I'll have a citation there, but then I'll be down the lower end of the county, which is essentially from, I think it's like 70 miles from one to the other. So I essentially be doing court in two different jurisdictions at the same time. Right. right. And our role, you know, I, I used to always say that I didn't want any more. They give us too much responsibility as it is. And you're going to add something to it, mm-hmm. you know, where you get the young guys that came in the department and it's funny. They're like, yeah, we want to write tickets. We don't do I didn't want any of that. I had a warrant and there's a jail and that's where that guy was going. No I- paperwork. Got guy in custody, period. <laughs> and when, um, how, how early on that, did you? How early on did you have your kids? Once you were on um, job? Early on, I had my kids uh, every other weekend and Wednesdays. <laughs> no, I mean, like, when, when were they born? When were oh, they? Oh, okay. Um, I was. Let's see. I got. 
got married. My oldest son is, uh, he's 18 now. So he was born in 2000. Okay. I have, I have, uh, all my, there are two boys, two girls and it's sandwiched my son, then my daughter, who's uh, 15 now, my younger son, who's 13. And then my baby who's turning 10 this month. So you'd already been on the job for 10 years before you had kids. Yeah. So, I mean, it was an easy transition for me. Um, I had a stay-at-home ex-wife, so my flexibility on my schedule worked. Um, and then what I would end up doing is I would work under or work over. So I would, I pretty much essentially, my tail end of my career, I was 3 a.m. to 3 p. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was only getting paid for eight hours, but there was such a demand. And most of my department knew my ins and outs. And they knew that I knew the ins and outs of a job. So if they were calling me, there's pretty good reason why they're calling me because they can't make a decision and they're iffy about policy and procedures. Mm-hmm. You know, even as down to, we'd put a new warrant unit out there and they'd go to a door, knock on the door and a person would say, you're not coming in slam the door and go away. And, you know, if you're going into that house, you better make sure you're coming out with a body first off. But the second thing is, is we have a body warrant and these lawyers and attorneys that they think they are mm-hmm. like, you don't have a search warrant. No, I have something better. It's called a body <laughs> warrant. Right. And I could search. It doesn't say the judge said, well, if the door's shut, you can't go in. <laughs> and I'm not allowed to go through your panty drawers mm-hmm. to find a body. Right. So I'm curious, was when you met your wife and got married, were you already an officer or a deputy or uh, was did you know you beforehand? Uh, she knew me right when I was a dispatcher and I was okay. working three to 11, which was the best relationship you could ever have with someone because you're, you're pretty much not there when they're there. You know, <laughs> um, I say that's why the marriage lasted 18 years. <laughs> um, yeah. So nonetheless, I was a dispatcher when I met her and she knew I was aspiring to be an officer. She wasn't happy about it. Mm. And it even became more prevalent when I'd leave for work and we had a baby, mm-hmm. you know, and I got mm-hmm. stuck by a needle once. So I had to go to the hospital to get tested. And, you know, and that's scared when you have a newborn, you're getting tested for HIV or any other transmittable right. diseases that you occurred while making an arrest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was something that I think we both needed to adjust. And then I think it just, she's got so relaxed with it that she wasn't going to get that phone call or there was no one from my department going to come to the house and knock on the door that I was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I wasn't, but I would tell her I was. Right. Yeah, we've all, I think any of us who've been in the job long enough have 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 had a, a spouse ask us if we are as safe as we can possibly be or or, or, or out of danger or in some situation. You know, they want that reassurance that there's n- no possible way that something's going to happen to us when we all know the fact is that we can't control everything and there's there's times where we may uh, we may tell a little white lie to to make them feel a little better, right? Well, I, I you know honestly, and and I'll kind of parlay what you're saying there, but a law enforcement officers, it's a joke. Everything's a joke. A dead body's a joke. You know, someone who just shot off their head. We used to call it a salad bowl. So I'm responding to a suicide, and then you get someone going a salad bowl. I'm like, yep, we got a salad bowl here, <laughs> and it's still spinning around in the parking lot. And, you know. But that's the way we deal with it, humor. Yeah. So when we come home, oh, yeah, I had this domestic today. Do you believe these two were drunk at 2 in the morning? And then they continue to be, you know, right. and that was, you know, us just playing it off. Now, at that incident, you got your ass kicked and the guy was charged with ag assault, but you just left that out of the conversation, <laughs> you know. I left out that detail, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're going through your career. You got 10 years on. You start having kids, but that's around the same time you get promoted. You're in this the warrant division, which is what you've been wanting and asking for. 
and and things are looking good, right? Things are working perfect. Um, I couldn't even have wrote a better script. I was knocking shit out of the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first day, I was on the job as acting corporal. Uh, we were looking for a guy that ran from us. We were in a, a a boat yard, so he could be in any one of these boats. And I'm laughing because, yeah, hey, man, I'm a corporal now. I'm backing up the unit. So uh, this is the start of my career, and most of your listeners will probably laugh their ass off because not everything's roses, you know. So I'm behind the front unit. We're both in marked vehicles, and we're looking left and right. We're not getting out of the vehicles yet. Well, the unit in front of me is a two-man unit. And the gentleman in the passenger seat points. He's like, Dad, I think he's there. So the deputy operating the SUV slams it in reverse and boom, right into my car. <laughs> that was my first day. So I called the chief and I said, do you want the good news or the bad news? He says, oh, well, just give me the good news. For I said, we're not hurt or injured. He says, and the bad news? I said, I have to take two officers for a piss test. Both vehicles are involved. He goes, ay, 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 ay. So... You know, but it showed how real I was. And I think that's why I got as far as I did, because I was honest mm-hmm. and things weren't always rosy. You know, I got my ass chewed out a lot. And and it's because it was stupid stuff that I even, you know, like I'd park behind the commissioner's uh, vehicles and then walk into headquarters. He kept telling me not doing. I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. I'll do it. I'll do that tomorrow. So that stuff in and of itself was, uh, it was fun for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I did not take that shit seriously because I knew I performed really well on the job. Right. Uh, so I was a seasoned officer. Um, I pretty much knew all the players involved. If we, if a domestic call came out or if it was a warrant, I saw a name I had, I could have been on Letterman for stupid human tricks. <laughs> uh, I couldn't forget what I had for lunch when the, you know, what time I need to be home, but I couldn't tell you anything. At work, I could tell you names, addresses, and how many contacts I had well, without even going to the computer. Yeah, I'm curious what was your what was your social structure and social life like during this time? Were you hanging out with other? Uh, uh, were you hanging out with your partners? Uh, was that something you thought of a lot, or was this just something you were you were in the the lifestyle of the running and gunning cop? What was that like? Uh, you know what? I used to say it, and um, I said it through my, my divorce proceedings. I was a rough, tough cop during the day. And I would go home and be the biggest pussy at my wife. She'd yell at me, a vacuum, and I'd be trying to vacuum quickly. Um, so that was a, a different avenue where she was controlling. She she said married people don't go out. Um, you know, cops, uh, they're notorious for cheating on people. Uh, and so it was the little things. And I didn't want to cast any dispersions about me. And, you know, guys talk. Um, especially in law enforcement, we all talk shit on one another, whether they want to or not, they're talking. <laughs> so I pretty, pretty much stayed away from that avenue of going out. Oh, um, interesting. And uh, which will lead up to my story to begin with. Um, so I ended up as a sergeant mm-hmm. and uh, basically I was working my ass off. I had life by the balls. I was internal affairs. Uh, SWAT negotiator. So we had training with the FBI. We had all kinds of shit going on. Uh, so the SWAT and then counterterrorism, I go down there once or twice a week in Philly um, and then do some training. And then I was the operations. I ended my career as an operations uh, officer. So I was like third in command in that unit, um, which is our major incident response team. So alongside of that, I was still running things for my department. 
um, the civil division, our extradition division, which I failed to mention at the beginning, which is a, a unit designated to drive, uh, I think it's a 500 mile radius to a Jersey, New York, Maryland to retrieve people that were taken into custody on our warrant and then we'd go get them back. Right. So I was in charge of that unit as well. And that, that unit, there was two of them. So you kind of had to uh, basically schedule your trips to certain facilities to minimize uh, overtime. You know, it was always about overtime. Always um, is. Always is about overtime. <laughs> and, and, yeah, it's the truth. And, and, you know, honestly, I pretty much cut that overtime out. And um, I know that they were wondering why when I got supervision um, that there was no more overtime being had. And it was, listen, I understood the management issue. And as a sergeant, you're facilitating the employee with the chief. And you're somehow trying to sugarcoat a policy he's doing, and then you're sugarcoating what a, what they're doing on the street. So, you know, I, I if someone uh, needed to get out early and go to a conference for their kids, I'd say, shoo on out, I'll cover your call. And then, you know, the next day, if he needed to hang over for an hour, he wasn't jamming us for overtime. So it was essentially a win-win. Mm -hmm. uh, my chief did at one point ask me why there was no more overtime, and I said, uh, there's a thing called plausible <laughs> plausible deniability. And mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, I said, you really probably don't want to know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we skirted the issue with that. And the guys were happy about that because if they needed to leave, they could. And it was about their family. Right. And on the tail end, hey, honey, I'm going to be home later. I'm not working overtime, but I'm going to work over a little bit. What was your favorite? So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go. Yeah, okay. I was saying, what, is your, what was your favorite thing about being a sergeant? Um, you know what? Uh, the ability to knock things out of the park by a phone or roll up on a scene. And these people I've already had contact with. In fact, one guy, we, I've arrested personally 15 times on child support warrants. Mm -hmm. And I roll up to the scene. He's given everybody an attitude. He's bitching at them. This, that. I roll up. He goes, hey, Raph, what's up? He's like, oh, shit, you got promoted. I said, yeah, because I, I got the 15 arrests on you, so they promoted me. He's laughing and all my guys are like, how do you fucking know him? And it was funny because that's, I would always use my voice to get someone into custody. I'd never display my firearm, would never be authoritative. There is different vernacular for different customers, I used to say. Um, in the lower portion of the county, the social and economical portion of it, it's low income. So if I went to a house and I was like, hello, sir, I need to come in your house and check for the said warrant here they'd be like, you're a pussy <laughs> and, and they wouldn't let me in or whatnot. So I tried to teach the guys that too. You have to, uh, and that was one of the really good goals of being a supervisor, which was teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you didn't have to go hard on them. Maybe you just had to go to everybody's surroundings. If I busted his friend's balls at a bar and I bust his dad's balls and his mom's ball, well, chances are he's going to walk in on his own. Mm -hmm. And that was the way I utilized um, my position. So it was fun as a sergeant. I had that ability to do it, but I also worked so many different de uh, department um, items. So it was easy for me. I was so quick being a dispatcher, you know, answering phones, 911, giving instructions over the phone that when I turned into a sergeant at the sheriff's office, I had that ability to, to multitask. So, and go ahead. So, so what was the first? What was the first sign that something was off? Uh, something was off, and I want to say it was six months towards the end of my career. But I, 
I understand that it could have been a year. Um, I noticed that I started sicking out from work. Taking sick um, time. Yeah, taking sick time. And I can tell you right now, I think I had like 2,000 sick hours. I never sicked out. If I did sick out, it's because I needed to go to a class trip somewhere. Sick time was for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, other than sick. You're sick. You muddle through work. Um, so I never used any time. And I'd make sure like a, I'd try to get my schedule as such that I could uh, go to the kids' baseball games or soccer practices. So I'd manipulate my schedule. And even so, I did so even more as a sergeant, but stayed readily available on my phone in case someone would need me because the other supervisors were in charge of different other divisions. Mm-hmm. And then so they they pretty much didn't know what I do, <laughs> which essentially that's the, what you want to do out there. Um, it, you're showing how crucial you are to the job. So about, like I said, about six months prior to, I started no, noticing a difference in my pattern. Um, I always drank alcohol, never shied away from it. Um, but I also didn't abuse it. And, you know, I look back at my career now and I, I'd have a beer with the barbecue after work or, you know, a beer when I come home after three to 11s, nothing ever big. It wasn't really, I needed it. It was like, Oh, Hey, I got a beer in the fridge, whatnot. So slowly but surely that started getting, uh, more broad, uh, my drink would be, I would no sooner get my uniform off, I'd be at home and I'd crack a beer. And we had take-home cars, just so you're aware. Um, so I would just crack a beer as soon as I walked in the door, uniform. I'm, so I would start to get like two or three deep in it. So I started noticing the change, but then again, I didn't think anything of it. Um, and being in the position I am now and having hindsight being 2020, I noticed what I was doing and I saw what I was doing in the mirror that, okay, well, it's fine. And then it turned into, I'm having two or three beers and then I'm having four or five with the kids doing homework and then I'm going to their functions. And then when, as soon as I come home, I'm drinking till 12, you know, midnight, one in the morning. And I noticed that started taking a toll on me because I'd go back in at uh, zero six hundred and I knew I smelled like a brewery, so I'd go to CVS or Walgreens and get that Axe spray so no one could smell it. Um, you know, I brushed my teeth real good. I would shower right before work. But uh, looking back, guys knew. and But I was reveled as a supervisor that I was able to do all these things. You know, I would answer the phone at night when they had a problem or they needed help with a report and, you know, or wording on a report that they, you know, had a roadblock. So I still handle all that stuff. So most of the guys didn't even understand. I wasn't slurring my speech. Um, and I, I grew to love natural light. And it's funny because later on in this story, they're like, your last drink was natural light. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was cheap, inexpensive. It was water. And I had the ability to know how much my intake was before I'd be slurring my words and how much sleep I needed before going into work. And, uh, and I'll tell you this before the end of my career, uh, a couple months before a deputy from Okeechobee, Florida, her name's, uh, Jessica Francis. She, um, she ended up calling me up. She said, a friend of mine, they have an autistic child. They're in your jurisdiction. Their car broke down. I can't get any answers. They don't have any money to stay an extra night. And all they did was drive up from Okeechobee, Florida to see Sesame place with their autistic child. 
so that day I said, no problem. I called the, the car dealership. I said, Hey, can you get, Oh, we didn't even look at it. I said, these people only have one time to stay and they want to go to uh, Sesame place. You're going to think you get it done. He's like, I'll work on it now. Sarge. I'll see what I could do. I said, all right. So I'm, again, I'm not looking for any handouts or anything like that. I'm looking to just push her up to the head of class so they can get out. I go back to the hotel, say the same thing to them, the hotel. I said, you know, they, they don't have any money to stay and their daughter, they want to get to Sesame place. So that was in April. And instead of just going, okay, yeah, I checked it out, Jess, you know, nothing's going to happen. Well, I could see that they were dropping the ball. Uh, everybody was. So I got a couple patrolling from my department, neighboring jurisdictions, and we took that kid license sirens to Sesame Place. <laughs> and she was so happy. Uh, the little girl, like, you know, she's autistic. She's in a wheelchair, but she was so happy going woo woo the whole ride. And Sesame Place opened up the their, you know, red carpet for them. And it was really rewarding to me. I asked nothing in return. And, and neither did Officer Francis as well, because um, it, what the funny thing is, is she was blaming me and saying it was all me. And I was saying, no, it's all her. <laughs> and Incredible. so we had three, six, you know, our three major networks doing a story on its newspapers. I don't like the limelight. So I just she called me the news reporter. I'm like, oh, I'm busy. I'm in court. Um, I could do a phone interview. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's when I started drinking. And that's when I started noticing because. I would have loved to be on TV. I was on TV uh, for a, a SWAT negotiation. They asked me to be interviewed. I'm like, my chief does all the public relations. And my chief's like, just handle it. I trust you. So uh, those things were easy, uh, easy peasy. I could talk, uh, articulate. I could turn street if I need to. Yo, brother. You know, I had that ability to flip flop my language to meet my clientele. So Officer Francis was telling everybody, and it's on the news all over. Um, Everybody's giving me accolades and like, hey, that was really nice that you did that. I'm like, I don't want anything for it. I just, I, I think Jess should do it. She's the one who made the phone call. I just asked and took her to. So that's when I noticed, I started to notice that beer is starting to ruin my life or rule my life, I should say. But I still didn't think it was a problem. And then it got worse. Then it got well, it's two in the morning and I can't go into work now at six or I can't go to work at three. Uh, so I better stick out. Well, that meant that I could drink all day. And so I started to utilize my sick time and it would pass it off that I, you know, hurt my arm or I was playing with the kids and I pulled a thigh muscle. You know, I had so many excuses or like assholes. Uh, everybody's have one. And the ultimate thing was is, I didn't even see me using these excuses. I was believing this shit, you know, and, you know, my son, I have full custody of my son. The other three live with my ex-wife. They're all brothers and sisters, same way. Um, same baby mama, I should say. Um, <laughs> but uh, so they live with her. He lives with me. She kicked him out when he was like 11. I took him in. I'm like, yo, bro, we're going to get the other ones. Don't worry about it. Which to this day, I gave her more fuel to the fire for the other three. Um, I'm still able to take care of my oldest son, but she inevitably thinks that I am incapable of helping with the other children. But um, that's my sidetrack there. Um, so basically, I started knowing this downward spiral, uh, spiral. And I remember seeing ads on TV at like two or three in the morning when I'm like a 12 pack in or a 30 pack in. I'm, 
I used to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to drink the top deck today and I'll drink the next day tomorrow. Well, that top deck turned into the bottom deck. And then I'd see these commercials at you know, like two or three in the morning of people. Uh, uh, if you know someone who's substance abuse and I used to look, I'm like, who the fuck's going to do that? Who would have time in their day to go down to either Florida or California to to go and talk about beer or whatever? And, you know, I really downplayed it, but it must have made an impression of me if I'm talking bad about them. Mm -hmm. And so this this progression was getting worse and worse and worse. I was taking three days then I was taking two days. I was making up excuses. I need some vacation time here. Uh, and basically, I was depleting everything. Now, at the same time, uh, the chief put out a memo, and it said, I, I can remember the date, as of August 2nd, no visible tattoos. And so I took that as, well, I better hurry up and run and get tattoos before the uh, August 2nd timeline. So out of you see, I got all kinds of dumb tattoos. I got Joker card. I got this is uh well, I'll get later into this one, the meaning, but I have you can't break me. I got it's always darkest before the dawn. I got a Spartan helmet and walk a mile on my shoes. So all these tattoos were literally, I believe, in a six month span. Um, no one said a word. Um, and it was at the point where the chief said, all right, everybody has visible tattoos. Everybody has to wear a nude sleeve. And so I was like, well, I got to wear a nude sleeve now. Who cares? Well, we all look like burn victims. It was funny. Like, oh, I just saved a baby from a fire with these you know, nude sleeves. I used to say, hey, can we get to the black ones? Just wear black because our uniforms were black. No, I went nude. Hey, you know what? He, he got paid chief pay. I'll listen. Right. Um, so no one in my department. Now, I, I'm sure I walked up to work and and. Uh, either held a roll call or held a divisional uh, meeting. They knew I was a drunk. I mean, my face was red all the time. I'm sure I, my my uh, my bones and everything were oozing of alcohol. And the day that I, uh, the day in question, it's not even in question, is I looked in the mirror and I said to myself, Joey, you are a freaking mess. Uh, you got to get help. And at that point, um, it was really weird because I noticed it, but at the same time, I didn't notice it. And I could identify if you had a problem, but I couldn't identify my own problem or take care of my own problem. I could give you a list of things to do. Boom, boom, boom. This is how you get out of your issue. But for myself, I couldn't. And that morning of, I looked in the mirror and I'd cut myself like 16 friggin' times with the razor. I looked like a yeah, you know, my face was blood. I had tissue stuck to it. My hair's all a mess. I'm red. I'm, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And still, I didn't recognize I had a problem. Um, so if it's okay, I'd like to kind of go into my story about uh, really what happened to me and the silver uh, silver lining in the cloud at the end. Yeah, of um, course. So basically... I was drinking way too much. I knew it. And there was a lot of employees that knew it as well. Um, they later say, oh, Sarge, I wish we'd been there. Uh, we talked about doing an intervention. Uh, my wife, my ex-wife was so rude and disrespectful and talked poorly about the kids. And yet I still smiled and did whatever I had to do, did conferences, coached their games, did everything. 
And I was still able to, I left my ex because I wasn't able to put my staple on them, on the kids. It was more or less, I was treated like a fifth child. Um, like I said, I'd go to work all rough and tumble and then I'd come home and I'd be the biggest pussy ever. Um, and the, the kids saw that and, and by witness, they would treat me as such, the fifth kid. Well, I'm not going to listen to you. I'll listen to mom, you know? So, but that's a minor glitch in the system. But, and, and I will preface this. I gave her all the fuel she could use, uh, for anything with me, um, in reference to this incident. So that morning of, I know I was drinking. I didn't have, uh, I had the day off. It was a Saturday. I had taken my blood pressure medication early on. It was a new one. And you know, I say this because your listeners uh, may know someone that was me, or they may be that person. And I'd love to catch people before they fell because I fell and I fell hard. Um, so the morning of, I'm hammered. I take the blood medication. And you, when you go to a doctor, what do you say? Oh, I'm a social drinker. Yeah, I just do. I have a beer with a with the barbecue. Oh, I just go to socially drink. You don't say, hey, listen, I'm like six deep every night or maybe I'm 12 deep on the weekends. You know, you don't say that. So nonetheless, I wasn't giving the doctor any information that probably could have been necessary. So I was on a beta blocker because I had heart condition, uh, which probably had to do with my drinking. Uh, you know, later I look and I have a blood disorder, all this shit that I didn't, you start noticing that you disregard your own health. That's the first step. I don't want to go to a doctor. They're going to find something wrong. I was throwing my daughter in a pool for three weeks. I walked around. I'm like, man, I hurt my shoulder. I'm not taking anything. No Tylenol. I'm just like, man, it sucks. It got really bad one night. So I went to the hospital. They did all this testing on me. They're like, yeah, it could be a bone bruise or whatever. They did it. Uh, uh, whatever they do, ultrasound. And the next thing I knew, I was wheeled back to the ER and they drugged me up and put me in ICU because I had a blood clot. And these are the things that I look back at that I wasn't taking care of myself. And I was taking care of the kids and I was taking care of her and I was making the money. I was working three different jobs. I was doing security. Uh, I was doing anything I could to keep her at a stay-at-home mom because she had a master's degree plus 30. So she's a teacher. Boom. That's a win-win situation. I'd rather have my kids with her than so that was pretty much the contract that we had, even after we divorced as well. Because I, I understand that I wouldn't want my kids in daycare if my ex is available to to, you know, really mentor them and teach them. And I always used to say, She's the academic king, I'm the athletic queen. You know, and I'd say it that way. because uh, my kids, they adored all the sports. I did all the sports with them. She knew nothing about sports. And, you know, once second grade kicked and they're doing fractions, I'm out. Peace. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're burning a lot of candles at a lot of ends. Yeah. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not smarter than a second grader. <laughs> what was that show? <laughs> um, so nonetheless, um, I'm drinking heavily. Uh, the night of, it's a Friday night. I got a weekend off and I started drinking and I took my beta blocker that went with my heart medication to this day i have no idea if it had anything to deal with this but uh, the next morning which was four hours later when i was still drinking i took a beta blocker again and my son to this day said dad you weren't yourself i went in his room and i told him i was going to go get the youngers and we're going to have a great weekend blah blah blah, blah. i had been drinking and i don't want to say i was blacked out but 
something was wrong. I got in my patrol car and I drove down to pick up the kids. Uh, so there's a faux pas, number one. Um, and then I said, oh, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'll just come home and then, you know, bark at them. So the kids are in the car. And that's when it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know much of the incident. I know I banged a patrol car off a couple of curbs. Uh, I had the wherewithal to get the kids out of the car right away. And I needed to find out how I was going to get home. And no one could find me for about two and a half hours. I couldn't tell you where I was. And then I ended up a disabled vehicle on the side of the road. Someone called in and it was swerving. I was off to the side of the road. I didn't even care about calling anybody. I didn't call anybody. I didn't do anything. And of course, the lo local jurisdiction comes up on me and they're like, Joey. And I'm hammered. I'm ossified. They didn't know what to do with me. And it's this typical cop approach. The thin blue line isn't anything that's, um, you know, I'm not looking to help you out because you got jammed up. That thin blue line is just to help someone in trouble. And it could have been prevented. And I'll get back into that. Um, but they didn't know what to do with me. Well, I knew what to do with myself. I remembered the TV programs of getting help and treatment. And my dad ended up coming and picked me up. How pathetic. You're 44 years old and your dad picks you up from a scene and you're hammered. And I said, take me to the hospital. I have a problem. And that was the first thing. And I walked into the hospital and I said, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. Huh. That was the hardest words I ever said. And they said, okay, well, we've got a bed ready. And I kept saying, I'm sorry, ma'am. Sorry, sir. I'm sorry I'm in here. I'm pathetic. They're like, no, you're not. You're just smart enough to realize it and try to get the help that you need. Um, it's going to be intensive. This wasn't built yesterday. So uh, Rome wasn't built yesterday. However, that saying goes, I'll mess them up as we go on in the interview. <laughs> um, we'll be circling a horse before the, uh, the horn or whatever. <laughs> um, so nonetheless, I asked for help. There was a mental health facility inside there. They didn't think I needed mental health. They knew I needed substance abuse. And I want to say and preface this, at no time was I doing it to try to get back into my department and trying to save Grace. I was doing it for me. And she said, would you like to go to Florida or would you like to go to California? Because I'd indicated I didn't want anywhere near my jurisdiction because A, I wouldn't be able to talk freely because it might be someone I locked up or it might be someone else that really shouldn't know where I'm at. And so I went down to Florida and my insurance covered everything, it covered the flight down, everything. And so I walked into rehab uh, and you went to detox first and they flew me down. I was picked up by a driver in a black limo. Total cop comes at me like, okay, they took my cell phone. They took everything from me and now they're driving me to this fucking place. You know, what the fuck are they going to do with me? You know, take me out back and shoot me. So they put me in this facility and the facility is a detox center. Everybody has various detoxes, whether it be heroin and opiate withdrawal, uh, some were on Suboxone, um, some were uh, just weeding off alcohol, which I'm told that alcohol is the worst substance that you could be detoxing from. Uh, that's why they put you in a detox center. So in the event, you know, something goes bad, they're there for you and the nurses are there. So I went there. I was scared, scared as shit. I didn't know what was going to go on in my department, nor did I care at that point because I wanted to get fixed. And I went down there just like a cop. What's the report say? I want this, this and this. I'm an alcoholic. I want to fix it. And 
So I went down there and it was a great uh, facility. It's called uh, Transformations Treatment Center. Um, so I went down there dejected, embarrassed, and I was there to work on things. Now I had picked up and dropped my son off, my oldest son, and just left everybody for 34 days. Uh, life doesn't tell you there's a yield sign when you're getting out of treatment. Everything is still going on while you're inside. And that's something that you really have to plan for when you get out of treatment. But getting into treatment at the beginning of this, I didn't want to do anything. They were like, okay, well, Saturday we're going kayaking. Um, next Saturday we're going to the beach. We're going to uh, a labyrinth, uh, a labyrinth uh, over at the school. It's a big walkway where you can meditate. We have uh, bongos. We have guitars. If you sing, you could sing. We have a recording studio. I mean, this, this shit was like top notch. Uh, after I got out of detox, they put you in a residential home. I used to say you get picked up in the druggy buggies. Everybody gets into druggy buggies and then they go to clinical and study how not to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. Um, so it was hard for me and I didn't want to do anything fun because I was there to get help. Mm -hmm. And one day, one of the counselors who they don't stay on site, the counselors stay at the clinical and then they go home to their houses. One makes a special visit to my room and I'm sitting on the bed and I'm scribing how my day is going. And he said, do me a favor and take off your cop hat right now. And he, the, you know, the theory was take the hat off. Right. So I did that and I stood there and I'm like, what? He's like, uh, why don't you go to any of these things we're offering? We're offering bowling. We're offering go-kart races. We're paddle boating, the ocean. You've never seen a clean ocean. You live by Jersey and it's shit ocean. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, well, I'm doing all these, not doing all these things because I'm here to get fixed. I'm not here to have fun. And he said to me, why do you think that we're having all these, these venues and everything that we're going to? I said, because you just want people not to get bored about talking about alcohol every day. He's like, no, we're teaching you how to do things fucking sober. And I was like, oh, he's like, you're supposed to have fun. But last time you went to the beach, at what time did you open up your cooler and look right and look left? I'm like, usually around 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. He goes, now you can go and you're sober. You're learning how to do these things. Hmm. You know, bowling doesn't take 14 pitchers of beer with the guys. You know, a movie, you're not supposed to get hammered before you go and then after. So. I really started to get really comfortable down there and I wasn't scared. Everybody kind of knew I was a cop, but they didn't really know. And I started to kind of understand though I'd been on this side of the law for so long um, that I was always helpful to people that were on heroin. I'd take them home to their parents, be like, you got to get them into treatment. Mm -hmm. Me charging him, he's going to get stuck in the system and he's going to do life on the installment plan. He's going to do three months in, two months out, four months in, one month out. And essentially, that's what you're doing, life on the installment plan. And uh, they can't pay for court cards as it is because we keep ripping them out during landscape season where they make hand over fist money. And then they are court costs, which is a you know an offense, uh, failure to appear on a cost warrant. Uh, so they get stuck in the system. And that's how I always dealt with things as a police officer. Now, it's me now. I'm in there. And I'm seeing what it's like these people are trying to get off heroin. They're trying to get off opiate addiction. They're, they're the gauntlet, cocaine, pot. Everybody's down there for a different reason. And I used to think, man, they're really fucked up people. 
Well, that was me. And until I realized that, it's just my drug of choice. Half the people were looking at me like, how the fuck could you drink at four, five, and six in the morning and watch the news? How could you do that? But I, I would never be able to do that. That became my norm. And I had to break that. And so I went down to the transformations, like I said, and they worked on me. And I was there to get fixed. 30 days, I was going to be out, fly home. Everything's perfect. Well, I started real. You're not allowed a phone call for the first seven days. And that's for you to concentrate on everything and not have any type of outside venue trying to tell you what to do while you're inside. Nor do you want to hear the negative opinion that's being thrown upon you while you're down there as well. Um, it hinders your your ability to get better. So I had called my son three weeks in. I didn't call anybody. And I just felt like I'm not going to call anybody. I'm dejected. They're all going to be pissed off at me. Why am I going to call there? So for some reason, it, I, I, I wanted to call my son to see how he's doing. Um, he and my ex never got along. Uh, like I said, she kicked him out when he was 11 years old, put him across the street and said, come get him. And uh, so there I was, third weekend. I'm like, I better make a phone call. I'm going to look like the biggest dick when I get back that I didn't call anybody. So I called him and he said, Dad? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, would you gank a phone out of there? I'm like, yeah, I'm like a prisoner down here, you know. And at that point, he's 16. So, he, you know, we had that kind of rocky relationship before. But the more I think about it, he grew accustomed to an alcoholic father. Hey guys and girls, I'm going to interrupt this episode to talk a little bit more about our sponsor, ProForce. A couple years ago, I was looking online for a new duty gun to replace my aging HK. My agency was taking a long time to close the deal, so I decided to purchase my own Glock Gen 4 G17. I shopped around and found out about ProForce and their insane prices on firearms and accessories, not just from Glock, but from all the major manufacturers, including Sig, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, HK, Colt, Remington, Springfield, and many others. Now, if you're a cop anywhere in Los Angeles or Orange County or even northern San Diego, you already know about ProForce and their amazing deals that they have at their store in Brea. They are only open to first responders, fire, law enforcement, medics, etc., and they are here to serve us. When they reached out to me to talk about working together, I wanted to learn more about them, so I spent a lot of time on the phone with them because though they're known for their great customer service, I just wanted to make sure they were a right fit for this uh, for this show. Well, ProForce has two retail locations, Orange County, California, and Prescott, Arizona. So if you're near either, make sure you stop in and see their selection. They've gotten rid of those two to three hour wait times that they kind of became famous for, and they've instituted an appointment system that makes your purchase so much faster. And they've got everything you want to go with your brand new gun, holsters, lights, sights, ammo, and more. Check out their newest deals at ProForceOnline.com. And in fact, if you go into the store in Brea, in Orange County, and tell the clerk you heard this ad, you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1 pistol light. I use the TLR1 myself, and it's an awesome light, so get 20% off yours in store. Just tell the sales associate the secret password, the squadron. All right, back to the episode. I would do everything, but I'd always have a beer in my hand. Um, and prior to this incident, I will tell you, it started out as progressive, and then it got progressively worse. It was a full-time job to be an alcoholic. I had to, and this is what I relate, and when I tell some of my stories to people, that you may not be there yet, but you're going to be the way you're going. And I'm not a preacher. Maybe you're not, but I can point you in the right direction. It's up to you to get the help you need. 
So the full-time job consisted of me buying a 30-pack at local uh, beer distributor and then blowing through that in a day and a half. And then I was like, well, I can't go back there. They're going to think I'm an alcoholic. So I would go, I would switch all my beer distributors and I would drive around to each one differently just to, it, it started to become a full-time job, 30 beers a day. And you say, oh my God, how it, it was normal. It was like water for me. And then I would hollow out the oatmeal box and click open the beers before my son would get home and put three of them in an oatmeal box. So he didn't hear me click and I put it up on the shelf. I hid them behind the microwave. I built a thing out of pallets uh, for mail and stuff like that. Well, I put it underneath there. Like I was the best alcoholic. I was awesome at hiding, but I wasn't. I was just fooling myself and I wasn't fooling anybody around me because they saw it. Hmm. So I'm back in transformations and I'm doing my thing as a rehab and I'm trying to, I'm really trying to facilitate. I'm teaching these young kids how to cook, how to clean. And once again, here comes the counselor. I'm at clinical. They're like, you're here for you to get better, not them. You're not here to teach them. I said, well, I'm teaching them life skills. So when they go home, they know what they're doing. No, that's not your job. And and as police officers, that's what we do. Um, and you see someone hurting, you're going to help them in any way you can. Uh, and I understood that half these people that were kicking heroin and, and opiates and all that, they'd been in and out of the system, some of which are down there because they're trying to uh, – trying not to get time and they're going to try to walk off their sentence in a rehab. Uh, so that wasn't my case. I wanted to get fixed. So I call my son. He's like, mommy kicked me out. She put me in another school the day after you left and I'm in a different school district. And I said, well, listen, where are you doing now? He's like, well, uh, my girlfriend's family came and picked me up to take care of me. I'm like, that's awesome. Good deal. I was like, when I come in, I'm getting off the plane on Thursday, the following Thursday. I said, I'm getting off the plane at night. I want you at my house, at our house on Friday morning. I'll make an appointment to go to get you back in your school. He's like, okay, you promise? I'm like, I got you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how you feeling? And I go, I, I feel amazing. And they take you to the gym. You get on the gym bus. So every night I was at the gym, there was nothing else to do. And Built like a brick shit house when I came back. I had six pack abs. I was feeling, I was all sorts of feeling good. Mm -hmm. So I put them in and uh, now I'm back from treatment. And now there's a whirlwind sw swooping around me. They're going to charge me. They're not going to charge me. DA reviewed the charge. And all this is on the news. It's in a local newspaper. My dad used to laugh and it hurtful at the time, but he would laugh and read the front page. He'd be like, ah, you beat Trump out again, <laughs> you know, and it, it, as funny as it is now, it wasn't funny back then sure, because yeah. I, they scrutinized everything I did that day and nothing of what I did in the newspapers prior to. And so nonetheless, I take him to go get his, uh, go to the counselor, guidance counselor, pick up your classes and whatnot. And at this time, he's a sophomore and he doesn't say a word. Guidance counselor says, uh, well, you're out of here for two weeks and now you're back. And. Anything we should know about? My son's like, no. So I said, excuse me, ma'am, I'd like to say something. She's like, yeah, go ahead. I said, uh, his dad's an alcoholic. She said, well, who's his father? I said, I am. And my son just looked. He wasn't embarrassed. And he looked at me like, he said it. He said it. Wow. And I was doing good. I was doing real good. So, but here's the problem. I got charged with a DUI. 
And because I told them I was on some sort of pill, they charged me with an M1 as well. And there was a lot of negotiations that went into that with my attorney, which I was like, I don't care. We'll do anything. And they wanted to change me to uh, endangering the welfare of a child, four counts. And I was scared as shit at this point. I didn't even care about jail time. I cared about my kids. And uh, I was like, if you're going to put them on the stand to testify against me, then I'll just plead guilty. And somehow the rigor moral, you know, through guilty pleas and whatnot, they got me to plead to a DUI and an M1 and left everything off the table and wrote a letter saying they weren't going to do it. Um, Not that that mattered to me because the more guilt I had about what I put those children through is worse than any sentence that you could give me. And the bottom line is, is that I could see everybody else faltering, but I couldn't see myself. So here I am in front of the courts, in front of my subordinates that I was their rock. I was the one that would help them. They get in a domestic situation with their wife and they'd call me up and I'd go over to their house off duty and say, hey, man, you guys can't be doing this shit. You can get involved in police things. You get a record. You get injured. All that stuff's going to happen and it spirals and you're going to lose your job anyway. So you won't be able to provide for your children. There's all the shit like that that I did on the side that I didn't do for myself. And so there I was in front of my men, essentially, and the judge read you know, obviously, and I'm sure it's the same way in California, they read the probable cause affidavit, but most of the times they just incorporate it on a guilty plea, incorporate the affidavit into court record instead of reading it. Uh, but not my case. They had to read the whole thing in open court. I was the first case. They kept sending other cases to other judges. They kept me in front of this judge, more than likely as a statement. Uh, I look back now. So, the judge says, uh, uh, you know what? It's really nice that you got help on your own, but eight o'clock in the morning, you got the kids in the car and you're drunk, you know? And I said, well, your honor, if I may interrupt, I'm an alcoholic. And I went down for treatment. He says, I recognize that you went down for treatment on your own. He said, but you're going to jail. I'm like, first time DUI and M1. I'm like, okay, I'll go to jail. My attorney says, well, just get house arrest. And that way you just do five days of house arrest in your house. I go, no, I want to go to jail. And he's like, why? And I said, because I am just going to sit home and drink for five days. The jail will come by, house arrest, I'm loaded. They're going to beat me right to the jail. I said, I don't want any of that bullshit. I'll go to jail for six days. So I go. That was a rough time for me. Really rough time because a lot of people knew I was a cop right away. Um, it was a constant battle every day. Um, I just quit drinking the day before I went in there. So I was home 76 days and the pressure. And I can tell you right now, if I stub my foot, that's a reason to drink. If I have a fight or an argument with my ex, that's a reason to drink. So there was no not reason to drink. And of course, I facilitated myself into a 76-day relapse. And when you relapse and you start drinking again, the most difficult thing that you could do is sit and wellow and sit and go, okay, well, I lost my job. Now, I was very unfortunate. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, I had 27 years on, so I was able to retire um, and start collecting my pension. But I was young enough that I didn't want to retire. I still wanted to work. And, you know, I could have fought it. And, and obviously, 
the sentence didn't outsee, you know, the crime was uh, DUI and the first time offense. And he's getting 40 days in jail, essentially, to six months in, in uh, probation. So, you know, I was fighting with that constantly. Like maybe I should have just pled guilty and had a bench trial. Well, the bench trial is going to go through the officers that are involved. I don't want to put them in the stand, but they didn't take blood, urine, uh, no breath, no nothing. They just said, okay, it's disabled that I'm on his way. And I went on my own. So I'm like, you know, I should be helped here. But nonetheless, I did the six days in jail and I performed over 200 hours of community service as well as uh, walked off my probation, which is a joke anyway. They just want the money. You call on the day of your birthday every month and it goes, do you want to be in any altercations? Yes, one, two. It's a joke. Um, like, yes, I had contact with cops and I got a DUI. Like, who's going to say that? You know, so it was a total joke. But now I'm back and now I'm drinking again. And I lost a lot of months. Once you start, you forget a lot of shit that's going on in your life. Um, like I said, I was able to retire. I had all the time in the world. And didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, so I went back to the, uh, ment- we're going to get back into the mental health issue. Uh, my substance abuse had started again. Um, I went to this, uh, it's called Lenape Valley Foundation, nonprofit that works for the county. And the day after I, uh, the day after I flew home, which was September 18th, September 19th, I was at their window knocking on the door saying, I need help. And so later determined, they talked to the facility that not only did I have a substance abuse, but with most most alcoholics, they hide. And I was the best hider. I was drunk. So I'd say switch to text um, with the kids. I did everything possible to not see people, to not walk into people, to not get in any discussions. They could smell me. Mm -hmm. They could do this. so I get diagnosed from Lenape Valley and it's a, I have a psychologist now. I have a case manager now. I have an alcohol case manager. I have a psychiatrist, doctor. I've never seen so many doctors in my friggin' life, but it was determined that I had PTSD and that I had bipolar two. All of which, all of which <clears throat> could have been affected from the job, could have been affected from my childhood and they don't know when it happened, but of course I try to fix that. Well, I can fix that, right? You can't fix it. You can manage it. Um, nonetheless, uh, I was very fortunate to get my retirement and now I'm on disability because I can't work. I can't carry a gun. And, uh, of course my attitude towards certain people sucks. So, <laughs> but they're still trying to change that. I don't know if they could change that at all. So here I was an alcoholic being treated for a, a substance abuse issue, but the underlying issue was my mental health issues. And it became difficult me uh, with me because I was like, oh, wow, I'm retarded now. And this is, you know, a typical cop. Oh, wow, I am rehab. I look like a piece of shit now. And here I go relapsing. And I'm working for this facility that I'm doing real, real well with them. And so they realize the mental health. They realize I'm hiding because of my mental health. So they start medicating me. But in the interim, the facility I went down there for thinks I have a year's sobriety and I'm a total fraud. I'm mm-hmm. flying to Florida to do videos for them. I'm flying to Chicago, Connecticut, Texas, talking about trying to get cops to go in. And 
when I say try to get them in, because no cop wants help and no cop wants to admit that they have a problem with drinking. I don't care if you tell me one guy, none of them do. Um, it's a badge of uh, it really disrespect towards the badge. And, and it's not the thin blue line because now all of a sudden you're a problem and we've identified it and they ain't going to do anything about it. So the big fraud I am, I go around talking and um, speaking to everybody. And here I am walking around being an addict again. They flew me to Chicago. I showed up at the hotel room drunk from the plane. I just kept drinking. Now, let me preface this by saying it. Uh, I have a it took me two years to get a service animal, a PTSD service dog, fully trained. I had to go train and I'm away with him for three months to learn how to. He learns my cues. I learn his cues and they don't let you leave until you're. So uh, he's allowed to go wherever I go. And he's been so helpful. And he flies on a plane. I get on a plane in Chicago, all sorts of jacked. And I have the dog with me. And the plane doesn't take off yet. They put me in a seat with three rows. So, and then it's not filled. The seat's not totally filled. So they put him in front of me, which is he flies with me anywhere. So I decide that I'm hammered enough and the staff have to put me on a plane in a wheelchair. I know they felt bad for me. They knew I was a veteran. They see the PTSD service dog. They felt bad for me. Well, you know, halfway through the flight, I wake up and I'm like, shit. I'm going to land soon and I'm going to have to meet with some representatives. So, of course, act two gets in, spray yourself with axe, brush your teeth, check in the hotel room, get a shower, dis, you know, uh, disinfect yourself. Well, I had during that flight taken Loki, which is my service dog, and walked up and down the aisles saying, hey, if anybody has any drugs now, just put them to the center aisle. We'll forget it even. I was so fucking hammered. I was just having a good time and no one knew how to take my personality. So by the time I got to the hotel, they were already tipped off because they, they booked a flight through their facility. And so they had called looking for whoever they put on that flight. And they know I could be me because I, I am crazy motherfucker <laughs> when I'm drunk or when I'm sober. Uh, I like to make people laugh. I'm always joking around. So they're like, well, maybe, you know, they just didn't know how to take Joey because they know me down there. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in so many things with them. I was down there visiting all kinds of crap. So here I am uh, in Chicago and I'm 86 from United Airlines. <laughs> That's the first like, oh, hey, you know, uh, they said, we're not going to fly you back. Um, you were disruptive on the flight flying out. So now they have to change my flight because now I fucked up on the plane. Um, I ran into this guy, I call him St. Nick. Um, his name's Nick and he's a recovering, uh, addict like myself, professional hider like myself. And he works for the facility, um, advocating for them and to try to help cops go. And that's how I came into play because they have an excellent facility for first responders and military. And they're segregated away from the public so that you could talk to the people of your own problems. Maybe you're not an addict that you don't feel good about yourselves. Now, you're still in class with them from time to time. But so and Nick Nick sees me, and we go out to dinner that night, and I'm really good, man. I brush my teeth good. I look good. I'm wearing a suit. I, I look like ass. Um, I'm red in the face. I probably look like, you know, I'm detoxing 17 hours or so. And we go out to dinner, and, and Nick's like, uh, you know, order whatever you want. I'm like, I'll just take a cherry soda. 
I'm good. I go back to the hotel that has beer in it. I'm like, I'll take a six pack. I'm down in it. So that night he came to my hotel room. Didn't say a word. He's like, okay, tomorrow morning we want you at nine. We're going to speak to this, this, and this. I'm like, okay, yeah. And then he walks out of the room and I'm starting to detox. I'm starting to throw up. I'm starting to do everything that I know I'm detoxing. Um, I call my girlfriend. I'm like, uh, I'm detoxing. She's like, well, go have a beer, you know, like to get that detox out. I'm like, I can't. I got to go speak. So once again, I'm screwed in the head. And Nick came back to the hell, uh, hotel room the next morning. He's like, did you have breakfast? I'm like, yeah, I don't feel so good. I said, I think I'm allergic to scallops. <laughs> First thing you say when you're an alcoholic, you find an excuse. And I think I'm going to fly with this excuse. So I keep going with it. And uh, Nick goes out of my room. He makes a couple phone calls and he comes back and he said, this is the hardest thing I'm going to have to do, but but I'm going to call you out. He's like, have you been drinking again? I said, yeah. He said, is there any way or is there concern that I need you to go to the hospital right now and get you detox and get you down to Florida? I was like, I don't have any insurance. My disability didn't kick in for insurance reasons yet because you have to be on two years of disability um, before you get a Medicare. So I'm like, I have no insurance. I got nothing. And yes, I, I'm an alcoholic. And yes, I relapsed. He said, how long? You know, I told him the whole relapse thing. And he said, I love you. I love you, brother. And I got your back. He's like, I'm going to get you a flight home. And why don't you get your shit together? Do you have enough money to fly down to, to Florida? And I said, yeah, I do. Uh, he said, I'm going to get a bed ready for you. He no sooner I left. They got me an Uber. I was at the store trying to down some alcohol to get away the detox because I wanted to detox down there safely. Um, so here I am. I get home and I think it's like midnight. It's just me and my son that live here, you know, and I can leave him because he's 18 now. Um just what you want to do as a dad, leave an 18 year old home alone for a month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but I took that seriously because I needed to get fixed. And I honestly think through my relapse, I learned more about my illness and what its effects were. But, you know, I, I look at this, the second visit. So Nick gets me down there. Well, I have to go down there to all the people that I made videos with all the people that I knew through passing because I came down there sober and all this. And so now I got to be humiliated, right? I mean, so I didn't make eye contact with anybody. They all knew who I was. I'm in the hallways with Loki. We're walking and they all knew who I was. And they all, I started making eye contact with people after about two weeks. Mm. And I started to understand that, my illness being untreated is something that someone else might have. We're cops. And how many times do you do with a domestic situation, whether it be right, wrong, or indifferent, they're both fighting, you're aggravated from it, and you're not even there, but then you take that home. Or you handle an accident scene where a toddler gets thrown from a car, and he's in still in that the car seat, but he, he went 50 yards to be ejected because the car seat wasn't installed right you think of your kids. I got four, you know, uh, obviously treating kids poorly, you know, endangering the welfare of a child. 
those type of incidents weigh on you, but we're cops. We take pictures with dead bodies and laugh. And then, you know, we yell at about a domestic situation. You believe that guy does this and she does that. It's all blown off because we're cops. It's funny, you know, and that's how we do with things. Humor. I never met a cop that didn't. And uh, so I learned to start managing my PTSD. I started realizing when my triggers were. Now, they gave me this dog and he follows me around everywhere I go. And even when he's off duty, he'll just follow me into a room. He sleeps at the foot of my bed. If I roll over, if I'm having a bad dream, he pops his head up, comes over, says, yeah, are you cool? And then goes, lays back down. Uh, when I'm about to trigger, same damn thing. It's funny. I'll be on the phone, irritated. And, uh, you know, he'll come over and he'll put his foot on my, uh, on my foot and then put a snout on my knee. Like, hey, calm down. And, uh, or he knows it's going to trigger. And, uh. Nonetheless, he sees it. I calm down. Well, I started to get so bored because I had no direction. And so I would call the my pillow guy at like two in the morning. And I'd say, hey, listen, because uh, you've been harassing me with these commercials left and right. I'd say, oh, I want a discount and I want a smaller pillow. And they're like, OK. And I was like, do you have a discount? Because my son's head's the size of Beetlejuice. Well, I did this until they blocked me, <laughs> and then I called the Cialis commercial and said, hey, I want that rowboat that's in the commercial. They're like, no, it's for ED. You know, So I'm doing all this shit as jokes, but it's keeping me busy. And so I started building stuff out of pallets, um, and that kept my mind busy. Kept Well, all the while, they're dealing with my mental health issues. They're helping me with my PTSD. You know, the therapist is going over it. The psychologist is going over it. And then it dawned on me that I'm doing nothing, absolutely nothing that I aspired to do. I lost my job. I, I'm no longer being able to carry a gun because I you know, pleaded guilty to an M1. And I started to lose my direction, not my sobriety, my direction, mental health. Uh, so I started to realize that I have a story and that this story Although it may be a little bit similar, it's eerie similar to a lot of guys, what they're going through. And I'd made it my wherewithal that I was going to help people get into treatment and catch them before they fall. And it's for two reasons. And, and I, I, I'm lying if I say I, I, I worry about the department. I don't worry about any officer's department. I worry about them. It does limit the liability on the employer. It limits the liability on the, the employee, and usually they're given a tool bet for mental health, and they get put back to work. So it's a win-win. Um, you're not worried about uh, legalities as the employee, and and you know what? You're not ruining your temp, uh, you know your reputation. So it started out with my community service, and I started to talk to at-risk students talk about, you know, how they could get stuck in the system and they can't get out and that most folks are doing life on the installment plan. And then it's, I talked about alcohol. And then I started talking to officers and I used to go into their command staff meetings. I still do. They're more broad in that uh, to look for signs. And the first thing I do on most of my speeches is I make sure I wear a suit and cover up any of my tattoos. I'll speak authoritative uh, during that process. I'll use juvenile. I'll use uh, apparently. 
and, and all the, you know, the rules of police, you know, vernacular over the radio. Mm-hmm. And during my speech, I just take off my shirt and I'm wearing a white T-shirt like I am now. And I'm doing this to make sure that they see all my tattoos. And then I pose the question, does anybody think differently? And they're all like, oh, no, not really. But they're not being truthful. But they did. And now all of a sudden, I'm this guy standing up there. And I'm talking street to them with all these tattoos. This was one of the things that, through my mental health, I was screaming for attention. If you get nine tattoos in a three-month span, you might have something wrong with you. And people missed those cues for me. They missed cues of me smelling like a brewery. Mm-hmm. And like the the main goal for me now is like I could catch that guy, and that guy can be back at work, and the employer will be happy that he asked for help. I never asked for help. How was I supposed to? You know, I look at the commercials or derelicts going down there, or this one or that one. I'm a cop. I'm above it. I don't. I don't need help. And that was the first observation. But now I knew that. So with my relapse, I learned so much more about myself and my cues to not. So I started helping people. And like I said, it was schools. And I, I'm starting to write articles for law enforcement today. Um, I write the articles, send them to the editor. They just proofread and, and they post my articles. I do speeches now for schools. I do speeches now for law enforcement. And I'm getting my name out there. And it's funny because I could care less about my name. Mm-hmm. I want people to see my name and to know that I was a sergeant and to know that I fell during this whole process. And I'm continuing to get up. And not every day is a battle anymore. Every day is a battle as to what I can uh, squeeze in. I was a- absolutely happy to have the opportunity to speak to the squad room. Um, I thought it's great what you're doing because these are issues that although no one talks about, it's very prevalent in everybody's department. And I don't care if there's just one, you know, there's one or two that you could sit next to roll call and you're like, this guy is, this guy's not doing good. And you take the job home with you. That's an excuse. Uh, yeah, well, I just drink a little bit. I could stop anytime. I had a, a dime for every cop that said, oh, yeah, well, I don't have a drinking problem like you. I could stop whenever I want. But yet they're calling me all slurry. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Raph, man. You know, and you're getting that slur. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, you're still doing the same thing. You, you need to get help. And I'm a proponent on the stigma, the stigma of a cop going down the treatment, which the crazy portion of everything is that you're just like them and them is me and i had to admit that i was an addict and the sad part about it is probably two days two or three days prior to my relapse it hit home with me because my son and i were texting back and forth and he was being rude to me and i'm like i'm your father and he goes no you're a fucking addict through text And I was like, whoa, whoa, I fell back in that proverbial hole again. And I was given a story down at Walter Reed when I was speaking to some military veterans that came back from Iraq. They went to Walter Reed. uh, I'm sorry, they went to Germany and then they flew them back to Walter Reed for mental health issues. Um, And they varied from, you know, rape to everything else that they had been doing over there, all kinds of stuff. Uh, 
you know, bombings and whatnot. And I went down there and there was a military guy that spoke before me. Um, and he said, I love this guy's story. Joey Rafferty, Sergeant Joseph Francis Rafferty Third, is here to speak about his blunders with the Bucks County Sheriff's Office. Whoa. You know, and that kind of hit down there. Mm-hmm. So he tells a story. He says, the, uh, the story is an officer falls into a hole proverbial of drug abuse, mental illness, whatever. And his sergeant walks by to him and throws him a shovel and says, get the fuck out of your hole. So that sergeant leaves. He thinks he took care of the problem. He's still stuck. His corporal walks by. He has a shovel. He says, I'm still stuck. Corporal throws him a bucket. He's still stuck. They call a priest to him. He prays with him for an hour, but he's still stuck. They call a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist, Gives them five five days worth of medication. And if you have PTSD and you're bipolar, you're not going to go back. So he does five and he stops. And then someone that has been through it walks by. He says, I'm still stuck. He grabs a shovel and jumps in with him. And he said, now we're both stuck. But I know a few things to try to get out. So it really does the ground on the the boots on the ground. Um, I have to honestly say there's a lot of friends that don't call me, don't hang out with me. Uh, I'm like a cancer to them. And then I got people that are just closet helpers or closet call in checks. And I don't out them for checking in on me. Um, I still have a great relationship with my department. All the guys still call me Sarge when I'm in there, whether it be a domestic relations issue with my ex or um, uh, doing events like this. I always bring my criminal charges. So I'd end up stopping the clerk of courts saying, this is what I had. This is what I did. Uh, you know, so people can review it when I'm talking because it makes it it makes it a true story if you put your name and you put yourself out there in an effort to help. And there's a lot of guys that don't want that help. And I get it. I was there. I didn't want the help. But the bottom line is, would you rather just gracefully fall into that hole and get caught doing something wrong? I can't tell you how many times you guys would be drink until two in the morning. They come in for a 6 a.m. shift. They're still drunk. And maybe they're handling an accident scene. And they get in an accident themselves. They got alcohol in them. And a lot of guys say, no, 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 no. And it's not me. It's not me. Yeah, I could stop. But all those things is what I said. It's, oh, I don't have time for that. I can't I have no time to be away from my family. Um, I can't be away from the job. They're going to find someone else who's going to be a sergeant in charge of everything that I was in charge of. Right. And sure enough, you know, it, it took a toll on me. I had a stay-at-home ex-wife. I was pretty much, I had four children. Uh, you know, not one, two, three, but four children. Numerous basketball games, soccer games, football, wrestling. And I'd be at every one. I, I, I had that ability to multitask that. I also had the ability to multitask all my um, jobs assigned to me through the sheriff's office as well. Well, I didn't take care of me. And so all those things finally took a toll. And it was crazy because in April, I told you that I've been dealing with uh, Officer Francis down in Florida, Okeechobee, and I was on top of the world. And not even a couple months later, boom, I ruined my career. And I think it could be stopped. And I'm very thankful that you have me on your program uh, for several reasons. One, I'd like to get the awareness out there. And like I said, I u- like to use my name 
because anybody can Google me. And it's a shame. My son was trying to uh, Google my wrestling record. And nothing came up but me, Sergeant DUI, Sergeant Rafferty, DUI, Sergeant convicted, Sergeant being sent to jail. And I didn't want that to define my career, mm-hmm. which is why I'm doing. And I don't, the way I handle it isn't like I'm holier than now. Like, you know, it's like that guy that quit smoking. Well, you should quit smoking. I took this and I, I don't smoke anymore. I don't Bible thump alcoholism. I don't. You either take the tools that I gave you and try to get the help or you don't. Uh, I'm not jamming it down anybody's throats. I'm telling them my story because they may think of that time that they look in the mirror before they go to work and say, man, you were fucking fucked up. You're red. You look like shit. You smell like shit. You're avoiding everybody. And like I said, it's a full-time job. And if someone that's out there that's a cop and it's a full-time job and they're starting to realize that they're hiding beers, that they're drinking all hours and they're doing everything that I did to fall into that hole. I couldn't get myself out. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing and I couldn't stop. It started with, I'll stop Monday, I'll stop Friday, but I'd still continue. You know, one of the things that you you brought it up, you mentioned it, and then I think is a real hang up or fear for a lot of guys is dealing with a shame, you know, and then finding yourself in a room. You know, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what, the rehab therapy is like, but you know, I think of like an AA meeting where you're all sitting around and folding chairs in a circle and there has to be some part of you or was some part of you that was scared about not only just admitting those things out outright and being ashamed of that and the, the things that it caused and the accident with the kids and, and all that. But then realizing that, you know, you've, you've hooked and booked these addicts, for various crimes throughout your career. And now you're in the same room with them on the same, same level playing field. What was, how do you deal with that, that shame? It was very difficult at first. At first I was ashamed of myself. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, you know, like I said previously that I tried to help everybody Mm -hmm. and everybody started to know I was a cop and everybody that I saw in those chairs and you're spot on. You go to clinic all day, you're in a round circle. It's just like a, um, but they're working on how you can deal with things in a proper um, protocol for alcohol, for every uh, DOC that you possibly could have. Mm-hmm. What was difficult for me is that I saw a person there and I started to actually care for the people that were there. Mm-hmm. And I could identify, OK, that's a shit bag. He's trying to work off the system uh, that got, you know, mm-hmm. and you're still eyeing people up as much as we say as cops, we're not. I, I could totally eye up someone in a minute and I'd be spot on. Right. And I still to this day, but it was difficult to get past that. And there was like a pamphlet given to me. It's called honesty. And it was um, pretty much words that indicate honesty and, or not indicate honesty. And I was given the one and I, I you were supposed to circle what word you really took out of this honesty. And I got self-deception. We are the best self-deceivers of ourselves i'm not a drunk i can quit any time oh you know what i have the day off it's only natural light all those things we're great at it mm-hmm. you know i stub my toe of course i'm going to drink well these people that are next to me they're doing the same damn thing and only they're they're really having a problem with it and they're not identifying it some go through their whole career i could tell you right now i know a couple people that are still cops 
that do the same thing I do, and you could see it, but nothing ever gets dealt with. So what's the? And, let, let me ask yeah. you that question then. So, um, if if someone's listening to this and they have they have someone in mind, you know, a friend, a partner, a beat car, um, and you said that nobody, everybody knew, but nobody stopped and confronted you or, or asked. How how can somebody begin that conversation with a with a with a partner? Um, you know, it's it's amazing that you say that because I could sit here and preach all day that I would have listened, I would have went down there. I wouldn't have. Sure. And yeah. I would you're full of shit. I don't have a problem. And then I'd wait two days to drink again, and then I'd just be back at square one. Right. Uh it's an excellent question. Um if the guy sitting next to you, if you care about him enough then you'll talk to him. Um, we have no problems with settling a domestic. We have no problems talking with our lieutenants and chiefs. We have no problems with anything law enforcement related, but this kid's home. And my question to whoever is the one that notices and identifies that that may be the guy, that's the time that you want to sit down. That is the time you want to sit down with family members. And I know it sounds like an intervention, uh, it's off duty. Go to their house, speak to them, uh, talk to the wife, because I'll tell you right now, because I went down to get help, there's a lot of wives in my department right now saying he does the same damn thing. He drives with roadies. He always has a beer in his hand. He's putting them in coffee cups, uh, you know, so hitting that home mm -hmm. makes it pretty prevalent with the with the spouse. It's difficult. So if you don't want to utilize the spouse, it's maybe the squad room after everybody heads back, heads out. Hey, I want to talk to you real quick. Can we just hang back? Those guys, one on one, and if you describe it the way I did, um, but only a more productive manner, because I didn't know I had mental illness, and I think you could slide that in there. You know, the last six months you've been sicking out, bud. What's going on? You drinking a lot? Um, you know. Any substance abuse and cops are not, we're people. There's doctors that were down there, baseball yep. players that were down there. Right. It's, yeah. it, it doesn't stop us from being there. So getting someone into treatment, half of it is education. If I tell you that your insurance company is going to cover it or they're going to put you in touch with another insurance company that will cover it mm -hmm. or another facility that will cover it, they're out there and no one ever gets turned down. You, Limit, like I said earlier, you limit the responsibility of the employer that you don't need to tell them that, that right away, but you have to tell them that you need help. They cannot deny you the help. You get that help and you come back and you keep your job. Uh, that's a big thing. When you come back from treatment, you keep your job. I was unfortunate. I fell in the hole. No one talked to me. 76 days. I'm, I don't know what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. Having purpose and having all those job titles, and, and I went from getting a phone call, being on the phone 24-7, to nothing, crickets. Yeah. And and that's a big thing. That's depression. I think a lot of people misunderstand. They, the assumption is if you go to treatment, you lose your job, and that is not the case. I mean, your case, you had a criminal charge you had to deal with that was obviously going to prevent you from going back into work the way you did or were before, but... If, if you're proactive with it, like you say, the vast majority of insurance, the way that it's treated as a health condition, you, you keep your job. I know officers who've kept their job. And, you know, that's the amazing part about this is that, and, and I still to this day could kick myself in the ass if I just admitted I had a problem and 
I had a conversation with my chief when I returned and he grabbed my shield and, and took my gun. I said, he said, why didn't you just tell me? Why didn't you, I could have gotten you help. Mm. And I said, you had so much responsibility on me that I didn't want to make you look bad. And he said, so what'd you end up doing? <laughs> yeah. Made me look bad. Right. And, it, and it's the truth. Mm-hmm. If these people can get the help and it's out there, if it's, there's facilities out there in California, um, first responder programs, uh, they could call transformations treatment center. They fly people in, um, I know there was a fire chief and this is for different things. So I'm going to kind of branch out. He was a gambler and he was like a fire chief. I forget somewhere in Midwest and they flew him in and he was there for gambling because he was losing all his money. Mm-hmm. And there's other people that are in there for, you know, depression, mental health issues because they have a mental health wing that helps law enforcement and first responders deal with that depression and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they deal with the alcohol issues too and whatever substance abuse. But if there's one thing that I could say to someone, get into treatment, it saves everything. And I made the same excuses that you're going to make right now, which is I don't have time to go away. Uh, everybody's going to think poorly of me. Mm-hmm. And the truth is no one really needs to know you're down there, but your employer, you don't need to tell your buddies. Just, I took a, men, uh, took a mental health thing and I, I you know, I flew down the, to Florida and I couldn't call anybody cause I didn't feel like it. Right. You don't have to, you don't know an ex- explanation to anyone until you get to my level. And I'm not owner. I, I'm taking ownership for my actions, but I'm helping people now. And like I said, if I can help one person that's listening to this program, then I did my job because everything that I went through could have been preventable. And a lot of people watched me slip and fall from grace. Some of which wanted me to, uh, cause they wanted my position. They wanted to be on the counterterrorism, uh, counterterrorism task force. They wanted to be a sergeant in my position in charge of warrants. So, there's often that that deals with the department too. Right. But I can tell you when you come back, you are full of piss and vinegar. You want to just be a badass. Uh, you don't have to worry about smelling anymore. You don't have to worry about brushing your teeth, putting ax spray, hiding your beers. The full-time job is over. And now my full-time job is literally going across America. And I never say no to anybody. They want to fly me in for speakership. I tell them I don't want to get paid. It's not a problem. I'll come in. I'll speak to like a thousand command staff or subordinates mm-hmm. and discuss this whole uh, falling. And because, I, you know, I can't help but think that an officer's life gets destroyed when you take their gun away and they have no ability to to be that person they used to be, a problem solver, really cool in their department. And they let substance abuse define them. And... I don't want that to happen uh, to others. It happened to me, my fall from grace. But now my my goal is, and I don't get paid anything, uh, is to go around and like be on a program with you to educate, um, to that hope that someone listens to my story and goes, "Wow, that's me! Holy shit!" And they may be in the early stages where alcohol is just you know social, but there's that one guy that really doesn't get the help he needs and he falls and he keeps falling. Everybody's like, ha ha, I'll get his shift or I'll get his sector. Right. And as much as it's a thin blue line, we're all chatty Cathy's anyway. <laughs> well, Joe, I'm glad, I'm glad you did say yes to this interview and I appreciate your time and your honesty and being so open with uh, this path that you took and the struggles. It's, 
hard to find a, a cop who's willing to talk openly about these things. And when I read your piece in law enforcement today, I immediately reached out and, and wanted to have this discussion to put a face and a name and a voice to this struggle that so many people are dealing with and they don't know where to begin. They, they, they feel like the world will end if they ask for help. And I think that you've helped, um, you know, disconnect us from that belief and that, and that misconception that all is lost if we ask for help. So Joey, thanks for your time today. I do appreciate that. Thank you so much. You know, this job is tough, tougher than anything that can be put into a few words or even just one interview here with Joey. But if you want to reach out, start a conversation, ask a question, I invite you to join our exclusive Facebook group. Just search the Squadron Podcast group and ask to join. It's only open to first responders and other supporters. So we have honest conversations and we can help each other achieve our goals. If there's something you connected with in this episode today and you feel like you need some help, you can check out some links in the squadroom.net. In this episode, we've posted some resources for uh, for different organizations around the country that can help and help begin this healing process. If you've heard something in this episode that you think someone else needs to hear, send them a link from one of these resources or send them a link to this episode. You can do that directly from your podcast players usually or certainly from our website. You can email it directly to someone, share it to their social page, whatever. You also can get signed up for our mailing list uh, and get some exclusive content there by texting the squad room, all one word to 44222. So in thinking about Joey today and about how his story relates to our badges, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service, what strikes me is that Joey's story is consistent with some of the things we frequently talk about where his beliefs and his actions were out of alignment. He believed he was hiding it. He believed he could stop at any time. He believed he was in control of it, but his actions were proving otherwise. His actions were demonstrating to his partners. They knew. And they knew. I mean, and, and of course, the, the disconnect between those two things just completely shatters any ability to achieve goals. And in Joey's diagnosis, we realize how he was poorly dealing with his emotions and trauma, right? His emotional survival. And as a result, he wasn't able to serve in the way that he wanted to serve. And luckily, Joey is able to find a new way to serve people by sharing the story and hoping to prevent other people from going down the same path. But to me, it just strikes such a chord with badges that he 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 is he is proof positive that we need to pay attention to those six dynamics in our life our beliefs actions discipline goals emotions and service i often get asked how a listener can help support the show above and beyond just leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice we do have sponsors on occasion but it costs a good deal of money to keep the show up and running and to maintain equipment and some travel etc cetera, etc cetera. Well, so there's several ways that you can help. They're all known as affiliate relationships. So everything I mentioned here, we get a percentage of whatever it is you spend. The best, fastest, and easiest one is to Amazon. Everybody shops on Amazon. I got my Prime account. But if you shop on Amazon, go first to our website, thesquadroom.net forward slash Amazon, and use the link there to, put, to get to Amazon. When you do that, Amazon tracks that you came to their website through us. And then we get a portion of whatever you spend, a small percentage. 
can be, it doesn't have to be on cop stuff. It can be on anything, bed mattresses to dish detergent to blue jeans, whatever. And they give us a, a consideration in response for that. If you do that every time you shop on Amazon, that will really help support the show. There's also a couple other ways that you can help. Uh, on it, for one, O-N-N-I-T dot com. They are a health and fitness online store, a juggernaut dedicated to what they're, they call total human optimization. I use their alpha brain nootropics a lot. I got some of their kettlebells. They've got a great wide variety of stuff. If you listen to Joe Rogan uh, or Andy Stump or any of those guys, you hear them talk about on it. Well, you can use, uh, save 10% using the code SQUADROOM when you go to onnit.com to buy any of their supplements or anything like that. Use that coupon code SQUADROOM or go to onnit.com forward slash SQUADROOM. That's O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash SQUADROOM. And you get 10% off of any Onnit product that you purchase. And like I said, that is also an affiliate relationship with us. They give us a little consideration for the fact that you bought through us. Also, uh, great people over at Hardhead Veterans, uh, the tactical helmets. Uh, a lot of people are buying Hardhead Veterans these days. My department is is quickly catching on to how quality, uh, the high quality of the helmet that they've made and the price that they sell them at. I've had one for several years, uh, probably about 18 months now, and I absolutely love it. And if you use the coupon code SQUADROOM, you get $20 off of your helmet from hardheadveterans.com. You can also get a free Audible trial and a free ebook through audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room. Sign up through that just using an email address. You get a free online book or a free ebook and a free uh, month trial. Uh, ebooks are a great way to pass an, or audible books are a great way to pass night shifts or, or commutes or anything like that. Assuming you've, you know, cut up on the squad room podcasts. Ranger up clothing. That's another one. Great supporters of the show. Another uh, affiliate relationship. Use the uh, coupon code the squad room for 10% off your order of anything at Ranger Up. Those are simple, fast ways that you can help support the show that help literally keep the lights on and the microphone warm for the next episodes. All right. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us uh, spread the word of the show. As I mentioned, a thank you to Ranger Up for their support. If you need a new t-shirt, something to wear at the gym, something to wear at training, check them out, rangerup.com, and use the co the code the squad room to get 10% off your order. As always, I'm available by email. You can reach me, Garrett, 2rs2ts at thesquadroom.net. And thank you for listening. Truly, thank you for listening to the show. This was a long one, but it was an important one. All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe. <laughs>